Are you going through life change soon? About to graduate high school in a matter of months? Or maybe college? Maybe you got a new job and you are about to start working. New relationship. New marriage. New child. Maybe you're about to retire from work. Or perhaps you're about to lose all of those things. Perhaps even about to enter eternal glory. One of the best ways to prepare for that life change that you are going to face is to learn from, of course, the experiences of others who have gone before. Asking questions, taking the advice, hearing the advice of others, right? That is how we learn and prepare ourselves for life change. And your intentionality, your teachability, your interest shows that you actually want to go into that situation prepared with your expectations shaped for the journey ahead. Well, in our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 4, I invite you to turn with me. 1 Peter chapter 4, we are in verses 1 to 6. Our passage helps shape our expectations as we prepare to live for God in this world. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Let's go ahead and stand as we read the Word of God. Let's stand together. Hear now these words of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the sl- same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Please be seated. The Christians that Peter wrote to, they certainly needed encouragement as they were facing trials of various kinds, the passage says, or in 1 Peter chapter 1 says. They were facing suffering and persecution for the faith, and so he writes them, helping to shape their expectations for their Christian lives, both with the hope of the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ, but also what is required to persevere in Christ while they suffer for Him. How can we prepare ourselves to live for God? That is our main question today that we're going to look at. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down. How can we prepare ourselves to live for God? Point number one, answer number one is to expect suffering. Point number one, expect suffering. You look there, Peter emphasizes in verse 1 the attitude, the mentality there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's attitude, thought, knowledge, 
that gives birth to action. Our passage, of course, is a continuation from what comes above. That's why there is a therefore. It follows on what came above. And and, uh, logically, we see the connection there. Look look there in 3.18. It says there that Christ suffered. Right? He's talking about why Jesus Christ died on the cross there in 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in or by the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk there in 21 and 22. You can go and skim those verses. He talks about how Christ got up from the dead, how he was raised from the dead. And so then Peter leans into practical application for all of us Christians. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, if you're visiting with us, I want to underscore for you that, it, it, that our lives as Christians have been absolutely transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Absolutely transformed. Now, I know in our passage, it basically tells us to walk in Jesus's, follow his example. Certainly, Christ is an example, but if all we think about is that Christ is our example merely, then we're actually missing out on the heart of what we live for. If there in 3.18, just to go back to where our passage is flowing from, it speaks specifically about why Jesus Christ came to die, not just as an example of enduring suffering, but it is so that you look there so that we would be brought back to God. That's why he came and died on the cross for our sins. The gospel is good news because the Bible says that in the beginning, man had rejected God. Right? In Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how Genesis 1 and 2 talks about how God created man to be in a relationship with him. Perfect relationship, if you can imagine that. There is no sin, there is perfect love. Whereas children are to live underneath him, and God draws the boundaries in which we are to live and thrive. But we, but, and then God draws near to us, giving us instruction, giving us love, and we basically wave him off. We wave him off. Not yet. And instead, we redraft the boundaries in which we are to live. We determine what is good and what is right for ourselves. And so we want to be like God, and that is the essence of sin. This sort of fictional understanding of man's autonomy, that we don't need God. We ourselves are basically functionally gods. And so the Bible calls that rebellion. It calls that sin. And for that, we earn for ourselves just condemnation. But of course, God is loving. He is compassionate. He is all merciful. Where we create the problem, God provides a solution. And He sends His eternal Son to take on flesh, to live the perfect life that we should have, and also to die the death that we deserved. And so He is the one who goes to the cross so that all who repent of their sins and believe would not have to. And instead of tasting death for our sins, we taste life eternal because of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Those who repent of their sins and believe, what do we know? We know the forgiveness of God. We know adoption into his family. We know justification, which Pastor Ron talked about. A declaration, though we are sinful, God declares us righteous in his own eyes. And he does that because he is the authority, the judge. And he says, no, you are righteous in my eyes, despite the fact that you are a sinner. We know God as Father, where we call on him for help and dependence and love we can turn to him despite our failings which he already knows and he already paid for in jesus christ 
And so we know the peace of God and the love of God poured out into our hearts. And he holds that out. That is the good news. He holds that out to everybody. And you will know that too if you repent, that is turn away from your sins, and you live for your Creator. You believe in Him and Jesus Christ, His Son. Again, that is what is the foundation of the Christian life. That's why we have been so transformed. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you more about who Jesus is and what that means for our lives. I'm going to be standing at that back door after the service here. But uh, while we have been transformed here, yes, Christ is certainly our example. He calls us here that we are to follow in his footsteps, or Peter says that earlier in 2.21. And this is supposed to shape the way we ourselves live and walk and experience suffering. You see here that Christ is our example. Go to 2.21. 2.21. And here he is, he's addressing those who suffer unjustly, and he points them to Jesus Christ. For to this, that is unjust suffering, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And you see how he, the righteous one, suffered unjustly. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right, so he's, Peter here, he's just continuing that flow of thought, and he calls us now to arm yourselves, arm ourselves with that same attitude. Just as Jesus suffered, so we will as well. So we're to equip ourselves with the same thinking and mentality. That word arm yourself there, you could, you could definitely hear the military connotations. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of an 80s kid, and uh, I grew up watching... Uh, Schwarzenegger movies on public television. And you, you guys remember this, if you are old guys like me. You remember the, 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 the military montage where the, the guy going to battle, the soldier, you know, there's a 30-second military montage where he's strapping on grenades and his guns and everything else, and he's ready to go? To contextualize, if you're, if, if, maybe you've seen Baymax or Big Hero 6. You know, where the hero Baymax, he's about to go into battle and save the day. And you have that montage as well, where he's strapping on his arm, he's putting on his helmet, he's putting on that big, powerful fist. He's arming himself to go into battle. Here, Peter is telling us that we are to arm ourselves, Christians, as we head out into the Christian life. It's a surprising weapon in the arsenal, isn't it? In the armory of the Christian faith. Christians don't typically think that victory will be won, right? Christians typically, some, do not think that victory is won by embracing the fact that we will suffer. Unfortunately, many have bought into the prosperity gospel as if Jesus wants us to be healthy and wealthy here in this life. And that's His purpose, to make us healthy and wealthy in this life. And if we just manifest our thoughts into the air, God is going to come along and bring them to us. Many wrongly think that, if be, that uh, becoming a Christian and having faith in Jesus will drive away suffering. And if you have ever thought in the midst of your own suffering, why me? I'm a Christian. Then 
friends, it's sad to say, but you have basically embraced a soft version of the health and wealth gospel, which I, I did growing up. Another reason why we don't think that suffering ought to be a banner in the Christian armory of life, maybe you come from a culture that simply doesn't talk about death. Maybe your family background has certain superstitions around certain numbers that are associated with death, like the number four. And so you think that if you have that number anywhere, in your phone number, in your address, you're going to bring bad luck. It's kind of like a popular version of karma. Or in the Western world, it's don't think negative things lest you bring negative things into your life. Friends, you've got to know that th- this type of thinking is completely against the Bible. Living well in this life does not come from refusing to think about suffering and death. I mean, just think practically, right? Isn't it awesome that we're going to have Uncle Wong uh, talk about estate planning, right? It's helpful to think about your end of life because that actually helps you and it helps your family. You're just preparing yourself for what you know is certain to come. Right? So there's an opportunity for you all to help yourself kind of embrace the fact that we are not gods and not going to live forever. But yet, for some reason, when it comes to the Christian life, we struggle to really embrace the fact to arm ourselves with this type of thinking. Of course, the Bible tells us that living well for God actually requires us to think well about life and death and the resurrection. In terms of suffering, you know, there's various reasons for why it is that we suffer, right? So we're trying to help ourselves think well about life on this earth in this fallen and sinful earth. The Bible says that we suffer because we live in a sinful and broken world. This is not the way that God had originally made the world. But sin and death comes into the world on account of sin, Romans 5 chapter chapter 5 says. And we see this damage, right? This fallout from sin all around us, physical ailments, diseases, natural disasters. Then there's, then there's a suffering that comes from us when we sin against each other, from lies to murder. And then on top of these things, Jesus makes it clear that just as the world rejects Him, so the world will reject His followers because of Him. Right? And so knowing that such suffering will come at some time helps us know how to live for God. Helps us to, to be prepared simply. So for you, Christian, is suffering for the sake of Christ a banner in your armory of faith? There is this one kind of leadership guy. He's a former Navy SEAL commander. Uh, he runs a leadership consultant company. And his banner is, get after it. And on his Instagram, social media, he's always posting pictures about his hands because he got all these calluses and everything else. He's a black belt in jujitsu too. How cool is that? But his banner is get after it because he knows it is difficult and nothing comes without challenge. I wonder what's the banner of your Christian life? Do you imagine it's all ease? Church, we need to set our expectations right. When we see this world for what it is, we are helped actually to turn to Christ and to trust in Him while we live for Him 
even in the face of difficulty, because God alone undoes the sin that we see all around us. He forgives the sin, gets rid of the guilt and shame as well that so haunts our own soul sometimes. God is the one who gets rid of that. He is the one who brings justice where there is injustice and righteousness where there is unrighteousness. And where there is wars, He's the one who stops it in His timing. I recognize in all this talk about having suffering for Jesus as a banner in the Christian armory, I'm sure that some of you may be tired. Tired of the ridicule that comes from standing for Jesus as you refuse to give in to sin or fight to not sin. Or maybe you're just tired just from general suffering living in a fallen world. But in relation here specifically to our passage, because there's slander going on for Christians or against Christians, maybe in wanting people right off of your back to stop bothering you, it seems almost easier, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem almost easier at certain times to just go back to your old life of sin? And you think, then at least it'll ease my social tensions. Then my family and friends will accept me again. You may even wonder in the moment if Christianity is really worth it. Let me encourage you to keep going. Keep going as you look to Christ. Keep going as you look to Christ because God is the one who has promised to complete what He has started in you. And God Himself will sustain you. And that work that He has started, right, we're supposed to be, if you go, go back to 122, go back to 122, we're supposed to think about how God has so changed our lives found at its very foundation as we have turned away from him, or sorry, tur- yeah, turned away from him, lived in sin, and now he, he, Peter encourages us to look back to God. Look at what he started in your life. You may be discouraged. You may be under pressure, experience trials of various kinds. Look back to what God is doing in your life. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Here's my point. Since you have been born again, You have been born again by the Heavenly Father, by the power of a Spirit in Jesus Christ, not of perishable seed, the things that fade, all the stuff that we might be tempted to live for, all the people that we might fear perishable, but we've been born again through the imperishable, the living and abiding Word of God, the eternal Word of God, which never fades In our passage, he encourages us to look to the fact that we have made a break from sin. We might be tempted to go back to sin. He points us back and says, look, you have genuinely broken away from the power and the life of sin that brings forth not life, but death. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh. Look there. The end of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's using words here that that certainly need explanation. When he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh, it's like talking to you guys, right? If you've ever experienced any ridicule for your Christianity, any suffering for your faith, whoever has suffered in the flesh, guys, that's you. 
He's talking about them. You who have persevered and endured suffering for Christ have ceased from sin. It doesn't mean that you are sinless. He's not saying that. He's not saying that suffering somehow leads to a path of sinless perfection. No, he's talking about how they have genuinely broken away from their life of sin. You who have suffered for Jesus, you have claimed and walked in the path of Christ for holiness. You've battled for it. You experienced slander from your family, from your friends. It shows, it's evidenced by the fact that you have really ceased from a life of sin, broken away from your life of sin. They have shown themselves to have broken with sin because they have ceased to live in sin like they used to. That's why they're being slandered, right? He encourages them in their commitment, right? From the beginning of their faith in 321, look there, he talks about how they've come to the Lord Lord Jesus, trusting that he will forgive them and that they would have clean consciences. In in 4.1 in our passage, he encourages them to live a life for God. And he helps them persevere all the way until the end. These verses here are meant really to encourage us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for you guys who have endured slander on account of the faith. It really shows that you have been born again. You have ceased from sin, broken off from your former life of sin. And here's the purpose. You look there in verse 2. It is so as, so as, or a natural resort to live For the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions or desires, carnal passions, lust of the flesh, but for the will of God. We as Christians, obviously, how is it that we live for the will of God? It is by, here, glorifying God in Christ through obeying His Word. Glorifying God in Christ through obeying His Word. So in terms of these encouragements, friends, I hope you keep that in mind. Remember that as you guys engage those around you, maybe your own children, maybe your own grandchildren for Jesus Christ, or maybe you are engaging your non-Christian parents or your grandparents. Remember, in your faithfulness to Jesus Christ, you show them that living for God and not sin is worth it. Living for God and not the world around you is worth it. Be encouraged. Even as you face difficulty, maybe from your family members, from your children, from your grandchildren. As you strive to be faithful to Jesus, people will see, remember this, people will see how good it is to live underneath this Christ. And maybe, maybe according to God's grace, they will come to give praise to God as it says in 2.12. Maybe according to His will, they might even be won over to Christ as it says in 3.1. But again, even if they should reject you, remember that in Christ there is everything to gain for those who bear His name. There is everything to gain for those who bear His name. Though your kids or your grandkids may reject you, in Christ you have a new name, a new family. In losing your earthly family for Christ, will you gain a spiritual family in the church? Maybe your family, is, your parents are threatening to cut you off because you have followed Jesus Christ. What did you know that in Christ you gain an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and God is keeping that for you? And in Christ, God restores the most important relationship that there could ever be. It's our relationship to God, the one who reconciles us to Him through His Son in death. 
on the cross. With God on your side who has given you everything in Jesus, who then is to harm you if you are zealous for God and His good? That's what he says there in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, if you're visiting with us again, you're, you're exploring Christianity. We're glad that you guys can be here. Again, I'd love to talk to you more. You might hear all of this stuff and think, dude, what is this guy talking about? Is he just, is, is he wanting Christians to purposefully divide their families? Definitely not. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not out to intentionally divide families. In fact, we as pastors want children to honor their parents, their father and mother. It is what the Bible says. But we believe that actually there is one who is worthy of greatest honor. All honor, and it isn't mere man or mere woman. It's God, our creator. Right? In terms of human life, right, it is special that a man uh, and woman come together in a couple in marriage to create a child, right? Your parents created you, and so you honor the one from whom you came, right? We all understand that. Well, friends, the same goes with God. From him comes not just one kid or two kids. From him comes all of life, as it says in Acts chapter 17. We are to honor the one who has given, the one who sustains our lives, even right now. He is the greatest authority, sovereign in power, perfect in his righteousness. And so all glory goes to him. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The only one who has creator rights and therefore is worthy of all glory and honor and power is not any man or woman. It is God alone. Again, it's not our hope to divide families or to tear up society. Not at all. We just think that since we live in God's house, so to speak, then we're going to give Him ultimate honor and allegiance. I mean, to, to give another created person honor and allegiance that is due only to the Creator is a bit like, if you can imagine it, one of our children giving ultimate praise to their sibling while they disregard mom and dad. How does that make sense? It wouldn't make sense. So we just understand that all glory is to go to the Creator and not ultimately to man or woman. Uh, We live for Him. That's That's what our passage encourages us to do. And sometimes this reality brings judgment. It brings slander. That was what was going on. They were refusing to sin. If you look there at 4 4, with respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Sometimes living for Jesus will bring this type of judgment, this type of slander. So we are, to wrap up point number one, we are to expect suffering. We are to expect suffering. Let's go back to our main question here. How can we better prepare ourselves to live for God? Number one, expect suffering. Number two, point number two, be done with sin Really, be done with sin, really. And here he's speaking to all of us here. We have all broken away from a life of sin, praise the Lord. It no longer marks us, though certainly we stumble and fall. We are done with a life of sin, but still, you know, we are to be done with sin. And I think in verses 2 and 3, uh, 1 Peter and 1 Peter as a whole affirm this. We are done to sin, and we are to be done with sin. You look there at verses 2 and 3. 
Here's the purpose, right? So as to live for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. As we live our lives for the will of God, right? We are not to live according to the flesh. To pursue what we used to pursue. It says that the time has the, the, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. When you hear the word Gentile here, think of spiritual Gentile, a spiritual Gentile, those who reject Jesus. He's not attacking the non-Jew. The churches that Peter was writing to were mixed, a mixed people, Gentiles and Jews. Here he's referring to a spiritual Gentile, one who rejects Jesus. I like how he says there, the time that is past suffices. Now, don't think here that, oh yeah, those years that I lived in idolatry, those were a good recommended amount of time. And if you haven't yet fulfilled that sufficient amount of time, go ahead and eventually repent of your sins. That's not what he's talking about. The Bible says that that would be presuming upon God's grace, which is sin. I think the way that this passage works is that we are to remember those years of sin look back at them, think of all the bad things that happened and see just how insufficient living in sin was. And then we're supposed to be spurred on to living for God. Imagine being a relatively new Christian. Maybe this is you and your experience of this. Maybe you have already broken off from your life of sin. Praise the Lord. Maybe even as you have determined in wisdom, some of us know this experience, maybe we have broken off hanging out with certain friends or spending time with certain friends as much. Maybe they were getting us in trouble or we were joining them in trouble all the time. And so they, ex- they, they slander the Christian for distancing themselves. And as verse 4 says, your old friends maybe or your family surprised when you don't join them in sin. And so they malign and slander you because you're no longer one with the world, one with them because you are one with Jesus. We can understand how this works, right? If we used to do a certain thing with our family and friends that was sinful, and then all of a sudden we stopped doing it, well, naturally our friends inadvertently, accidentally in some ways uh, might feel judged by the way that we live, even though we're not saying anything. We could also see how it works in society and think about larger relationships in society. If you refuse to do what they do, you are likely to be slandered. I mean, you look at the things that Peter lists. These were all associated with the worship of pagan gods at city festivals. He speaks their sexual immorality, drinking parties, etc. All these things were done amongst the citizens. And so if you Christians are distancing yourself from the citizens, then the citizens are going to look at you and think, you guys are bad citizens. We understand how this could have easily happened. And then they go around slandering the Christians. Well, thinking back to our modern society, you know, we don't worship gods through these particular ways, at least physical gods. Certainly we pursue sexual immorality, and our, our culture does, in the worship of ourselves. So we know what these sins are about. But Christian, if you have begun to distance yourself, and maybe you've been slandered, or maybe you suffer somehow, when you're mocked, Right, well, you might be tempted to think it's just easier once again to give in, and then we don't have to face mockery anymore. 
Or maybe, maybe what drives you is not necessarily fitting in with community. Maybe what drives you is just simple carnality. And what calls your name, what you experience in your soul is just temptation for carnality. And it rages in your heart and your mind. And you're striving to refuse to give in. But yet maybe you want to give in. Our passage reminds us, Christian, the time you spent in that suffices. It's insufficient. Don't go back to your sins. Christians, haven't you had enough of sin and all of its curses? Hasn't there been enough damage caused in the wake of your own sin? In counseling, pastors certainly see sin's devastation. You, I'm sure, see sin's devastation as well, particularly when it comes to sexual immorality. Of course, once again, it's not the sexual immorality in the worship of false gods or in temple worship. It's the sexual immorality that comes from simply doing what we want, worship of self. And no matter the situation, there is so much devastation incalculable devastation that wrecks just so many lies and there's so much damage but yet it starts with a fleeting thought a little flirt a little feeling friends to help us not turn back to sin but to continue pursuing God and being done with sin just think about the devastation friends life your own life Let me just play out this scenario of sexual immorality. Think about what it does to you. Think about what it has done to you. How it turns you away from your loved ones. Leaves you in the dark. Think about how it has hardened your heart as you run from guilt and shame. Of course, in your guilt and shame, Jesus calls you to come to Him, right? He's the Savior, the loving Savior. But those who refuse, they got to bury their guilt and shame somehow. Think about how you have hardened your heart, your conscience towards God, but then also towards those around you. Think about how it has left you untrustworthy. Living a lie. Think about how your sins multiply. Lie after lie. Think about how lonely you've become because no one knows you and you tell no one. Think about how your heart and character, just like your morals, become darker and darker. Think about what it does to your loved ones. And even if you aren't married, you can clearly see where this is going to take you, right? Think about what it would do to your loved ones. Your spouse the insecurity it would bring, the suspicion it would bring, 
the hurt and the tears. Think about what it would do to your future children, your current children. The insecurity, the doubt, the wondering if mom or dad and dad is going to stay together. Think about how they would grow up wondering, can any relationship in marriage be redeemed? Think about how they too would learn, like, I guess walking in sinfulness is okay. Think about the testimony of Jesus Christ to others that it would have on your children if you were to continue living in sexual immorality. Friends, aren't you glad you are done living in sin? Aren't you glad to have that guilt and that weight off of you as you come to Christ with all of your trash? Because He's the one who takes it away? Aren't you glad that you live now in the Spirit which brings life and no longer in sin that brings forth death according to James 1? Romans chapter 7. That sin brings forth the fruit of death. Praise God for freeing us from the power of sin that is no longer the course that we live in. Praise God for cleansing our consciences as we have confessed our sins before God that we are depraved, that we are sinners in need of salvation all by the grace and mercy of Jesus freely given to those who turn from their sins and believe. Praise God for His grace. I don't say any of all that to condemn anyone here. You guys realize that Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. In other words, let's just pretend I'm Peter. I'm writing this to you. He's saying the time that you all used to live in your carnal passions has sufficed. It is enough. Now turn to Jesus and let's get going working for Him, living for Him, glorying Him in, in, in His grace. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. We see this again. We are those who Peter is writing to. But Paul says it as well. You look there at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. He says simply, now he's not saying this to, I don't say this to condemn, just to point out the fact that we are sinners in need of grace. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I guess that's none of us here. I mean, we are all these things. But he actually holds out hope there. You look at verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. He's writing to a church filled with sinners and such were some of you. But hey, we know we're sinful and we know God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the incarnation and the cross. And such were some of you, but you, praise the Lord, by His grace, were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That means that, friends, we can have that, all, that background, and yet here we are standing justified before God's eyes all by His grace in Christ. Praise God for that. Let 
Thank God that by His grace He has helped us to break away from sin. We certainly struggle and stumble. But no longer is that the course that we walked in. No longer do we live for the world, but instead we live for God. This is the good life now. This is the good life now. Not our old ways, but this life now. So if you're tempted to go back, tempted to think, oh, giving in to sin is easier, then all my social problems will go away. No, this is the good life now. Where we once delighted in sexual immorality, well, now in Jesus, we are taught to delight and fight for and see the beauty of sexual fidelity. Fulfillment is not found outside. It is found in faithfulness to Jesus and our spouse. So our spouse too can know the love of God a little bit more, secure in his faithfulness because our love of faithfulness reflects God's love of faithfulness. We love with a Christ-like love. We're filled with this true godly love of respect and honor, a love that seeks to make others secure in the love of Christ. That's what Christ's love does for us. It secures us, even though we know we had that background, have that background, but yet we are secure in the love of Jesus. So what do we make of the world's slander? Let the world slander you then. Let the world slander you. Let the world slander you for being home with your family and not getting drunk. for being present with your families, aware, engaged, loving them instead of leaving our wives and children to fend for themselves. I actually want my kids to have a good family upbringing as God intends. I want them to grow up in a loving and trusting environment so they see a little more of God's love, the Father's love for His people. Certainly, I am a sinful person as we all are, but as Christians, the way we love reflects the love of God for his people in Jesus Christ. And I want my kids to know a little bit more of that. We have to remember, as it says in 3.17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Right? So, so let the world slander. I want my children to grow up in a loving and trustworthy environment so that God willing, they could become loving and trustworthy people themselves, loving, trusting husbands and wives themselves, fathers and mothers themselves, all by God's grace, we pray, following Jesus Christ, loving as he loves so that the world will know that we are his disciples. So friends, if you are tempted to go back to living in sin, remember just how insufficient it was. Remember and recount all of sin's devastations and lean into God's grace who has rescued you, cleansed you, washed you, justified you. Lean into living for Him and not our passions. Be done with sin, really. And I hope, friends, that as you go ahead and do all these things and you fight to believe why you should pursue God rather than sin, I hope that as you hang out in wisdom with, let's say, the folks that may slander you, your non-Christian friends, etc., I hope you're explaining to them why you think it is better. Explain to them, too, why it's such a battle even at times to, to believe that this is better. Then they, too, will know, ah, this Rocky fella, he's an interesting guy. I see, though, that he loves his wife and his children. And that's worth more than drinking 
and even his friendship with me as I try and get him to drink with me is worth more than making millions of dollars doing over here shady stuff. Who knows? Pastor Rocky doesn't do shady stuff. But you see how it works. You live your life in front of them. And they, they'll come to see something is interesting. And then you have the opportunity to love them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can we live for God? Number one, expect suffering. Number two, be done with sin, really. Point number three, trust in God's plans. Trust in God's plans. Even in the midst of rejection here, we're called to trust in God. We can trust in God. Look at four. Four, and we'll read to the end of our passage. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Our verse holds out hope calls us to trust in God who first will judge. First, God will judge. This is verse 5. And second, God will bring us to glory. God will bring us to glory. Let's look at the fact that God is judge. In the face of slander, Paul, uh, Peter wants them to know that those who malign you will not have the last word, right? The instinct when we're maligned says, I need to rectify this now. And so you go out and you try somehow to rectify your name, to hold it up as if you could. But he says no. Verse 5, God, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I get that, in, that, that desire to go and rectify the situation, to clear your name. And sometimes where we are aiming for the glory of God, that can be good. But sometimes if all we're trying to do is protect our name because we want us ourselves to be praised in certain circles and we want to possess or keep the honor of man, then obviously that instinct might be bad. But I, I understand, right? I understand the instinct. Nobody wants to be judged wrongly, especially because even in being judged, in some ways they're judging Jesus, right? We don't want that. We want people to understand us and most importantly Christ well. Well, this passage reminds us that it's not our slanders who have the last word. It's God's judgment that is final. His word that is final. They will give account to Christ who, will, who is appointed judge. Now, the fact that Christ will judge all men is not written to sort of satisfy a, some sense of revenge, like, hey, they'll be destroyed and then I'm going to have my turn. No, it's actually understanding the fact that God will judge encourages us to love all the more until our very last breath. It encourages us in holiness all the way until the end. It encourages us to do good even while suffering unjustly. We, encourage, we are encouraged here to love just like Christ loved. We're encouraged to be ready to offer a hope that we, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ according to 1 Peter 3.15. No matter what people say about you. Right? The fact that Jesus will return to judge is a reason that we ought to go on loving. Christians are the ones who know that judgment is coming, right? Those who don't believe, of course, they don't know or accept the fact that Christ will return. Therefore, Christians ought to want to go out with the hope of the gospel that once again, that the people we talk to, the people that we live in front of would repent of their sins and believe, right? So to not desire a sinner's salvation, to be quiet, or even to foster some heart of bitterness of revenge. 
or to live for the fear of man is to not love and live like Jesus Christ. You look at Christ's love. He knew that a time was appointed for him to judge, but yet he enters into the world and suffers at the hands of sinners, for sinners, to bring them to God, as 3.18 says. He's seeking their reconciliation, despite the fact that he knows that he will suffer. And so we, in many ways, are called out to do the same. Sent out to do the same. Go out with the hope of the gospel, seeking reconciliation between God and sinners as we hold out Christ. Christ endured, not just to set an example, but in order to save. Now certainly, again, we don't die on the cross for sins, but we certainly suffer for His name, seeing that other people would be saved. Second, God will bring us to glory. Second, God will bring us to glory. You can imagine slander being slandered, the effect that it would have on the community. Perhaps the non-Christian would look at Christians who have died already and say, see, that's, not, that's, that's proof that your, your Jesus stuff is meaningless. It's proof that, you, that it's not, your Christianity is not worth following or your Jesus is not worth believing in. What hope is there for them who have already died? They share the same fate of all men. Similar objections seem to be posed to Paul in 1 Thessalonians. And so here Peter continues to provide hope in verse 6. Leaning forward to the end of the sentence that he knows he's getting to, he says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. What a hope! We too, you Christian, maybe even over this last weekend, may look at other Christians who have already died already heard the gospel, already believed. They lived and then they died. And you might feel the sting that they are no longer with you. That's who Peter's talking about. Those who, when they were alive, heard and believed the gospel, but then, of course, they went on to die because that's the fate of man. He's not talking or saying that preachers went and preached to dead people. As in, we too should go to the cemeteries and preach to the dead. There's nothing in Scripture Uh, that indicates that you get a second chance of salvation in hell. He's talking about those who heard the gospel but simply are already past. They are now dead. And thinking about their situation, perhaps they were tempted, right, in that moment while they're seeing their friends at the cemetery. They've already buried their Christian friends. Perhaps they're tempted to take their eyes off of Jesus and think, is that it? Is that it? We face slander, persecution, and eventually maybe we die and our fate is just like them? Peter says, no. Just as we are to expect suffering, we ought to expect glory as well. It's not just suffering. It's suffering and then glory. And this is crucial to living in the will of God. If you look there at 3.18, right? You see Christ suffered. But in 21 and 22, he says there's glory. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we see Christ suffering. We will too. And at the end, he's so diligent to remind us again that one day we will live by the power of the Spirit as well. Even though we may, be, even though we may die, that is, we may be judged in the flesh the way everyone is. We all die. Well, because of the gospel, we will live in the Spirit. 
Not is there just suffering. Not only should you expect suffering and be done with sin, but you should also expect glory in the final destruction of Satan in the end. Christian, I pray that this encourages you in your own fight as you live for the will of God. This is the reason God sent His Son in the first place. It is so that you would not perish, but that you would have everlasting life and resurrection life in the Son. And in the Son, death even is swallowed up in victory. This is the purpose, this is the plan of our merciful and loving God that Christ would not just die, but that He would go on to be raised to new life and that the gospel would be preached by us to the ends of the earth, all of His people, to the ends of the earth. And though you may face the consequences of sin and death and suffering, though we all do, praise God, there is a resurrection from the dead and forgiveness of sins in Christ. So if you look to those who have passed, as you look to your forefathers and your mothers in the hall, your hall of faith who hoped in the gospel, look to them and their faith. Look to their perseverance and see again that Christ is that real, that trustworthy. He's worthy of being believed in all the way until our final breath. And so we proclaim with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that in Christ we have our hope. We acknowledge, even as we survey our own hearts, battle with our sin, stare face to face with our guilt and the devastation that our own sins have brought upon ourselves and our families and our communities. We thank You, God, that You are our God of grace. We thank You that You are our God of steadfast love even, that even though You know we will continue to sin, yet, Lord, You purpose that Your love will never be removed from Your people. We pray, Lord, that we would be like children who run to their parents when they have done wrong. Not with fear of wrath, but with an appropriate guilt and an appropriate sorrow and repentance and an absolute need that we are in need of continual hope. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are faithful. And your word says that you stand with arms wide open to receive those who come to you. We thank you, God, that there, is prom- there are so many promises of the fact that you forgive us of our sins. That as far as the east is from the west, so far do you separate us from our sins. You promise that you are righteous and just to forgive us our sins when we call and cry out to you. We thank you, God, that as Jesus Christ died on the cross, 
Lord Jesus, you said it is finished and your sacrifice is once and for all. Lord, we pray that we would bask in that glory, in that grace, and in your mercy. And so therefore, live for your glory. Help us seek your holiness and walk in your pathway just as you called us to so that the world would see that we are your disciples. Help us not fear man, but help us fear you. Help us be done with sin and have a right expectation that certainly because of sin, there is suffering. But on account of your goodness and power, there is the hope of glory in Jesus Christ. Do these things, we pray, for the sake of your glorious name. In your name we pray. Amen.